Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders that are making huge differences to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with Esther Odejemi Uzokwe. Esther's program director at 10,000 Black Interns, affectionately known as 10KBI. 10KBI helps businesses transform the horizons and prospects of young black people in the UK by offering paid work experience across a range of industries, as well as world-class training and development. Prior to 10KBI, Esther graduated from Oxford University with a degree in theology and religion, where she also launched a social enterprise aimed at increasing the black pipeline into Oxford, Cambridge and other top-tier universities. After graduating, she joined the city as an investment banker, because that's pretty much what everybody else did, left after two years and resumed life as an entrepreneur before joining 10KBI. She's East London, born and bred, plays the drums and was born with six fingers on her left hand. Esther, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. No, look, really appreciate that. I look, there's a fascinating story in that intro there. would love just to spend a couple of minutes on kind of your journey to date and how you've got to 10KBI. Sure. I'll start all the way from the beginning where I was born in Hackney, Homerton Hospital with six fingers on my left hand. So yeah, stayed comprehensively educated, um, went to the same secondary school from year seven right through to my A-levels. Just really decided to focus. And I remember there was one particularly or two particularly instrumental teachers at my secondary school at the time, because as I said, it was state comp. So mm -hmm. resource wise, they weren't really prepped to send people to the best institutions, if that makes sense. And I remember receiving a lot of pushback as well, educationally from particular members of staff at the school who didn't think that I should be aiming for particular universities mm -hmm. to go into a, li a little bit more detail about that. And it's really linked to what we're going to discuss today, I think, in terms of where it starts educationally with a lot of the diversity that we see or that we don't see really mm -hmm. in, in the corporate world. There was an open day that Cambridge did and my school did a trip to the Cambridge open day and kind of selected some of the top performers to go. I was one of them. And I, at this point in time, never missed a day of school. So as a result of going to this open day, I missed a day of school. And one of my um, teachers at the time, and remember this is A-level. Mm -hmm. So one of the, my teachers at the time went through the registrar, realized I wasn't in the class. And he was like to the class, oh, where, where's Esther? And then the other members of the class said, oh, she's gone to the Cambridge open day. And I kid you not, I get back into school the next day. And of course, all of my friends are going to snitch on the teacher. Mm -hmm. they, they came straight to me and they said, Esther, you'll never guess what X, Y, Z said in the classroom. And I was like, what, what, what happened? And they said, basically, after realizing I wasn't in the lesson for about 20 minutes, he put the lesson on pause, scrapped the lesson plan and decided to host a discussion as to why Esther thinks she's capable of um, getting into an institution like Cambridge. Don't I understand that people that look like me don't go there? People that speak like me don't go there. All of the above. And this came back to me and I was absolutely livid. And I tell you, that mm. was the first fire underneath my backside that was like, do you know what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you for saying that. Watch. <laughs> yeah, but that's awesome. Well, I mean, it, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? Obviously. But it's yeah, also, wild. I think your interpretation of it is awesome and commendable, but sadly not how everybody would interpret an ordeal like that, right? And mm. yeah, it's amazing 
for us to kind of shine a light on these stories because it does provide the context that people I think really need to understand around why as you said we're not seeing diversity and it starts mm. this early right I Absolutely. think people look too late in that journey and yeah no thanks for sharing that with us that's just ridiculous absolutely <laughs> it's, ridiculous. it's crazy it is wild but unfortunately quite common in in certain schools you know and do you think that's got better or worse I mean that wasn't a long time ago sadly but like do you think it's, it's changed yet yeah I mean I would like to think it has changed. I think for my former school, I mean, it definitely goes without saying that there were key people at that school that without them, I would not have got into the university that I got into. I would not be where I am today and I will give them all the dues that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think that, you know, things are better now, particularly because people have been forced to face the truths of this kind of conversation and about diversity and about access. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it took the murder of a black man in public for a lot of these conversations to happen in a lot of rooms. We're there nonetheless. And I think as a result, it's definitely become um, much more of a focal point, a serious focal point mm -hmm. away from roundtable discussions, around uh, away from panel discussions. Like Super actual abstract action. concepts. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Actual yeah. actionable points that, you know, people mm -hmm. are taking on board now. So in answer to your question, yes, I do think it is changing. Still a long way to go, though. For sure. And just to dig into that a little bit deeper before we move on, like, what do you see, if anything, like the role organizations can play in this, right? So, and what I mean by that is, you know, we know that we want to solve this problem at source and obviously excited mm. to learn more about 100 black interns and 10,000 mm. black interns, and we'll do that in a minute. Mm. I guess when we talk about uh, these barriers put in front of you at the educational stage and sometimes even earlier, right? And these these challenges around perception and around your belief and ability and, and your Mm. level of normality i guess in these environments like is there something that businesses and organizations who are the primary listeners of this can be doing to engage with education to fix this or is that like a, a segregated problem absolutely i think that i don't think it's a segregated problem at all i think a lot of this can be boiled down to the matter of visibility mm -hmm. and whether or not from a young age people who look like me or you know people who are gay or people who you know whatever their difference may be in terms of what the quote-unquote norm is mm -hmm. they see people that look like them or identify in the same way that they do within some of these corporations and institutions and it takes me if I jump a bit forward and we can reverse back later on if you wish but mm -hmm. I remember being at the careers fair at university at Oxford. And I walked into, and we're talking, you know, they do it in the town hall. It's massive. You have literally the cream of the crop in terms of firms, whatever that even means these days, yeah. representing themselves to apparently the smartest students in, in the country. And I remember walking in thinking, oh, the stall that I see the first black person at is the stall that I'm going to head to because I want to hear about what that firm does. Interesting. And that was my mentality at the time. I'm talking 19, 20-year-old Esther walking in, literally praying to see somebody that looked like me. Mm -hmm. Walked in there, and unfortunately, no, I kid you not, I did not find a single black person from any of these firms, I'm talking hundreds of firms, mm -hmm. stood at the, at the stands in the careers fair. And that genuinely upset me. Yeah, as it should. Yeah, and I'm not the type of person that necessarily looks for that visibility. I am not of the disposition to care too much as to whether or not I'm the only one in the room. Of course, there are negative effects of that being the, the situation, but it's not a massive decider in what I do. At this point in time, I just remember feeling extremely deflated. I walked around the entire, like all of the stalls, didn't see anyone, faked a few interesting conversations with some people and literally walked out mm -hmm. thinking absolutely not to any of these firms. 
and you know, out of interest, you're saying everybody there didn't didn't look like mm. you, and there wasn't any relatability. Mm. Did that reflect the student base, Oxford at the time? So, unfortunately, yes, to a certain extent. And again, Oxford are doing kudos to them because they really are doing a lot to to combat this problem of underrepresentation. And you know, the figures mm-hmm. now are much better than they were when I studied there. Uh, I matriculated in 2014, and I studied quite a niche subject as well. And anyone that kind of looks at my background. Everything I go on to do in terms of a next step doesn't make sense in terms of what I've done prior. So, you know, my A-levels, English literature, biology, drama. And then what did I do for uni, theology and religion? And then what did I do? I became an equity derivatives investment banker. And now what am I doing? I'm Mm -hmm. (laughs) running a a company in the social impact space. So um, Mm -hmm. studying such a niche subject from a state comprehensive school, I mean, they don't even offer theology and religion as an A-level. And I remember getting into uni and meeting the other people studying my degree, asking them what their A-levels were, and they were telling me they studied classics, theology and religion, and mm-hmm. you know all sorts of stuff that I had no idea any academic institution offered at the A-level stage. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was like, well, okay, I, I feel like I'm behind. But that being said, one of the ramifications of that reality is that I was the only black person on the entire undergraduate degree. There was one other girl she was an international student. She dropped out because she was just like, no, what is this? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was the only black person studying theology and religion at the university at the time, at the undergrad level. The only black person in my year group at my college at Oxford at the time. Again, there was another guy who matriculated with us, um, but unfortunately he dropped out as well and didn't come back. So yeah, it was a reflection actually of that, unfortunately. Well, it's kind of telling, right? Yeah. But like, hopefully that changes. And as I say, you've, you've touched on, on that and that is changing. But I think, again, it's it's about awareness as much as anything mm. else, right? And giving people perspective on the challenges and perceptions every stakeholder in this process faces For sure. to solve these problems properly. For sure. So I think we won't dwell on it too much, but you talked about kind of leaving and, and entering the equities derivative space. Yeah. What what led you there? Why, why there? Uh, what led me there? I think that's literally what everybody did. So being in Oxford... I was on scholarship with Lloyd's Banking Group and it was fantastic. Great scholarship program for anyone looking to apply to university. Just a quick shout out. You know, they subsidize your fees. Mm -hmm. They give you internship opportunities, all of the above. So only because of that scholarship was I aware of what an internship even was Mm -hmm. because it was kind of forced onto me as part of the structure of their program. So I did an internship in my second year with them and I then got into my kind of final year and that's when everyone does their applications if they haven't secured something off of the back of an internship in their final year. And um, the names I heard were all the same. I mean, everybody had the same target firms. It was your, you know, mm-hmm. your Goldman's, your McKinsey's. That, that's all you heard around the space. And those firms, kudos to them as well. They really do a lot to make sure that you know exactly who they are whilst you're on campus. You know, they do a lot of outreach mm-hmm. on campus. So yeah, that's what everybody did. And I didn't really understand what the other options would be if I decided that that was not the trajectory that I chose for myself. So I put in applications to where everybody puts their applications into and ended up in equity derivatives in investment banking. And yeah, it was great. It was a good two years. Yeah, Good yeah, two years, yeah. learned a lot, very steep learning curve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but definitely as somebody who I would describe myself as much more qualitative than quantitative. So I have no idea how and why I ended up in the most technical team in one of the biggest investment banks. Sure. But I did and learned a lot, as I said, over the course of two years, but definitely left feeling that, you know, the time was right for me to pursue what I'm passionate about, which is social impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what I'd been doing throughout my time 
at university as well. So yeah, that was the, the thinking behind that. No, it's great. And I think, again, kudos to you, I guess, not just for finding your way out of that, like, mire, but also, you know, you talked earlier about how when you were at Oxford, you built your own social enterprise designed to kind of promote an increased pipeline of the black population into those organizations mm. and into the broader top tier university ecosystem. And so you're not just kind of identifying problems and talking about them. You're also fixing them as you're going, which is trying. epic. And one of the many <laughs> Yeah, well, try, yeah, <laughs> trying is the important word yeah. because none of this stuff's easy, right? But sure. somebody has to try. And I think the more people that are doing that, the better. I think expanding on that a bit and you know you talk about how social impact is important to you i think would love to just give the audience a bit more of an understanding of the 100 black interns yeah. and 10,000 black interns now and sort of what the founding story of that is and what this is there to do yeah absolutely i'll start with the founding story so for to clear up any confusion 100 black interns is considered the inaugural program of 10,000 black interns so as an entity we re- we're referred to as 10,000 black interns or legally 10,000 black interns foundation and we started off as I said, as 100 black interns. And the story behind that is we have a great set of co-founders, one of them being Jonathan Sorrell. And in the summer of last year, so we're talking less than a year ago in August, wanted to host um, a dinner for black investment managers in the city of London. And quickly realized that out of however many thousand investment managers there are in London, 2,000, 3,000, whatever that number is, Mm -hmm. if we're lucky, 10 to 15 of them are black. So This is about who is managing the money of the city. There are thousands of people and amongst them, a very small number of black people. And this coincided with the murder of George Floyd. And the time absolutely was right to do something tangible about the underrepresentation of black people in industry. And that's how the idea of 100 Black Interns came about, essentially. And it was a super simple premise. The idea is that The co-founders then came together, joined their contact list together and literally sat down calling up investment managers to sign up to this program. And inevitably what they were signing up to was to say that they would hire an intern in a front office revenue generating investment management team for a minimum of six weeks in the summer of 2021, paying a minimum of the local living wage, which in London is around £10.80 something an hour or something like that. Mm-hmm. But of course, it can be more than six weeks and it can pay more than the living wage. It was just setting the absolute bare minimum that it must be. Again, and that's really important to actually focus on because we have a number of firms that still practice unpaid internships, which that's that's neo-slavery. I don't care whether it's a black person or white person. That should not be happening in 2021. If you don't have the funds for an intern, then you don't hire an intern. Increase your capacity as a team. And in terms of the time frame as well, a number of firms engage in practices of, you know, bringing someone on board to do photocopying and making tea for a couple of weeks under this program. That's not an internship, is it? Exactly. Under this program, that's not what we're here for. It's a substantial amount of time, minimum of six weeks, whereby they can use that experience to leverage in their future career, whether it's with that firm or with another firm. So super simple premise, no contract to sign for the firms. And the eligibility criteria from the student perspective is that, of course, you are black. You are studying at a UK university um, across any year group of higher educational study. So undergrad or postgrad, mm-hmm. or you're a recent graduate or 18 plus post A-level with the intention to study at university. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they called it 100 black interns. And the idea was to get 100 firms to sign up to this. And within less than 24 hours, they had more than 100 firms basically calling game and saying they wanted to be involved. They then doubled the intake, signed up 200 firms. And this is purely investment management firms, to reiterate. Mm-hmm. Signed up 200 firms and put about 40 to 50 on a waiting list. So that was the kind of first indicator that 
the time was right to do something like this. Yeah. Firms are ready, knocking on an open door here. Mm -hmm. And then they then opened up applications to students, you know, expecting to get a couple of hundred, maybe 300 applications from students. Because at this point in time, it was basically a hashtag circulating on social media yep. with some press around it as well. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, ended up getting two and a half thousand applications from students across the UK. Mm -hmm. In terms of illegible applications, 2,165 of them. So we did get some cheeky students or people trying their luck with the eligibility criteria. We expect that every single Sure. Year, but yeah, you're, you're gonna right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. but yeah. we'll filter through that. People will be people, yeah. So, yeah, we got a vast number of applications to cut a long story short. And um, we know that investment management is very elite in, in its hiring practices as an industry, it's very white and it's also very male. Mm -hmm. There's a great organization called Girls Are Investors or Gain, they also go by. Um, and they ran some research in investment management and came out with the fact that around 20% of the junior hire intake in investment management are people who identify as female. And the other 80% are those that identify as male. So we're talking that there's a massive disparity there. And then fast forward through to the kind of the breakdown of who actually applied to our program. We had 59% of them come from non-Russell Group universities. And for us, that was a big win. Mm -hmm. And that actually translated into 40% of the offers. Going to the gender disparity, we had 41% of our applications come from females, people identifying as female. And that translated into 45% of the offer rate. So where that's not 50 or more, which is where we'd absolutely love it to be, because women are, you know, vastly underrepresented in, in these in these industries. It's more than double what you're classically seeing in investment management. And I'd pay big bucks, Tom, mm -hmm. to find an investment management firm in the city with 40 percent of their workforce coming from non-Russell Group universities and 45 percent mm -hmm. of their workforce being female. I'd pay big buck for that. It's amazing. So, yeah, there are a number of things that just, that just made it clear that the time was right. Industry was ready and also students were ready to take up this opportunity. And we had other industries kind of looking over the garden fence, also being interested in the in the playbook that we were executing. And that's how 100 black interns within the space of a few months turned into mm -hmm. 10,000 black interns. And the idea of 10,000 black interns is also pretty simple. So we aggregate that number over the course of five years. We have a target of 2,000 mm -hmm. internships every year. We're open to all industries, most business streams within companies. So at date, to date, we are partnered up with 24 different sectors, 750 firms across the UK. And together, they're pledging already more than 2,000 internships towards the 2022 program execution. So that's the long and short of you know, how we started, where we are now and where we are heading. Amazing. I was going to ask you why this is important to you. <laughs> I don't think that question needs to be asked. I think this is important to everyone, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, look, I think that's awesome. And again, in the spirit of transparency, we are a participating organization yes. in this, which is one of the many, many, many reasons that we were super excited to bring you on and learn more. Absolutely. But I think what you and the team are doing is absolutely phenomenal. And I think we're, we're super excited to watch the progress. But I think there's so many lessons we can learn, mm. right? not just today from the experience you had with 100 Black Interns, but also in how you're approaching 10 KBI and how you're going to see the rollout happening in the next few years. And so if it's cool with you, I wanted to dig into let's that in a few different ways, right? And so let's split this in kind of three parts, right? We'll talk about kind of general internship best practice and advice. I want to dig into some of the more diversity specific topics mm. that you've touched on a little bit so far. Mm -hmm. And then I want to talk more generally and more openly about like early in career hiring, because I think we see lots of organizations miss a trick here or kind of get this wrong. Yeah. And so let's talk about internships in general for a second, right? And what's the biggest misconception you're seeing people have around internship programs in general? And I think you touched on it really briefly and I'll throw my two cents in the ring here sure. and just say that like when we speak to lots of organizations talking about internships, I think that the default in lots of more traditional industries is still to view it as 
somebody that makes the tea and does the photocopying <laughs> exactly as you said, yeah. right? And I think from my perspective, if you're not treating it as Absolutely. almost like a recruitment investment and you see this as a you giving something to the exactly. intern rather than them taking pain away from your admin, exactly. yeah. it's a waste of time for both parties, yeah. right? And it's devastatingly terrible for your employer brand long term if Absolutely. you're too short-sighted to see that. But where do you see problems lie in the way most orgs are sort of interpreting internships? I completely agree with and echo everything that you've just said. I think there definitely needs to be, and I think there is beginning to be, a shift in the the view and the mentality from the firm perspective. More so now than before, I think, in terms of my generation and below. Mm -hmm. People are approaching these opportunities with themselves at the centre. It's what can you as a firm give me or prove to me Yep. as to why I should take up this opportunity. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, or I'm happy for other people to disagree with this premise, but I feel like in years prior, it was the other way around. It was the intern or the, the junior hire coming in, really wanting to prove yep. themselves and sell themselves and work the hours. Mm -hmm. It's funny because just the other day, a friend of mine who works for, you know, a big, a big financial firm messaged me about an opening that they had at, or a bunch of openings that they have at the firm for junior hires. This is outside of the program. It's not a 10,000 black interns thing. Mm -hmm. And um, she basically said, can you circulate this amongst your network? And I said, of course. And I did. And the response was just so symptomatic of the generation that we are in now. I sent it into this chat. I'm talking hundreds of, you know, junior black people at the very beginning, at the very beginning of their career. And each and mm -hmm. every one of them without fail said, absolutely not. This is slavery. I'm going to be working crazy hours. I won't have any work-life balance, all of the above. Mm -hmm. And to yep. me, that was the biggest indicator of who we are now dealing with, who firms now have to understand that they are dealing with. Yep. People are approaching your firm with the idea that what is in it for me? Will I need therapy by the time I leave your company? Yeah. Will yeah, I put yeah, on yeah. 10 stone because I'm working crazy hours and snacking in the middle of the night to keep myself awake? Mm -hmm. Culture is so, so, so important. And I think firms really do need to shift the focus and make sure that, particularly in this hyper-visible world, where if I want to find out about the culture of a firm, all I need to do is do a bit of a Google or look on LinkedIn, see what statement they put out in response to a particular world issue that I'm interested in, and boom, that gives me a snapshot into the mentality of the firm. If it agrees with what I agree with, I may apply. If it doesn't, I may not. So firms really do need to be cognizant of the fact that one, they are hyper visible. People are more so interested in culture and, you know, what their well-being will look like as a result of working for your firm, as opposed to, are you going to like me at the end of this six-week program and give me an offer? If you don't give me an offer, I can start my own company. I can go and do something. The mentality mm -hmm. is just so different yeah. for, for these generations. That's a, a really, really strong point, right? And I think we talk about this all the time at the macro level, and we try and encourage organizations to understand that like the power has shifted, has. right? As you said, historically, it sat with the company, and now it's very firmly with the candidate. And I, I wonder almost if there's a correlation in terms of the like broader success of a business and specifically their people play in terms of where they understand that that power shift has happened, right? Because I think if you look back historically, I think most organizations, and this may have even been more true in the past, think of like the whole Mad Men era, right? Where mm. the sort of more senior the personnel you're trying to recruit are, the more the power sits with the person and less with the company, right? And, yeah, and that, yeah. that conversation shifted at some point in that hierarchy from what can we do for you to what can yeah. we do for us in reverse, right? And yeah. I think what we've seen through Pinpoint and, and other things over the past few years is 
the sooner that organizations realize that power has shifted and the earlier in the career, career trajectory they realize that's shifted, the better. I think we are seeing lots of organizations understand that that conversation isn't just reserved for top tier management and actually applies mm-hmm. early in career. Everyone. But I think your point is that it actually applies even pre that. It Absolutely. applies before someone applies for a job. It applies at the internship mm-hmm. level. It applies at the career sphere and everything prior to mm-hmm. that, right? And I think it also impo- it's also important to understand that I think if you're an Oxford undergrad, you know, with the background that you have, maybe that conversation was true for you 10 years ago anyway, because you were a very desirable commodity. But I think now it's true of anyone in any circumstance, because everyone has choice. For sure. Right. And I think, yeah, like that is a super important takeaway for me personally, is to distribute that message far Mm. and wide, right? Like how early do you understand that your job is to make the candidate, the intern, the person, the school student want you? Yeah not the other way around, yeah. right? And also, how early do you allow them to understand that the environment within your firm is conducive to their success? Mm-hmm. Because that is, it's a related matter, but I still think it's quite separate because marketing ones, I mean, you know, some firms have fantastic PR and they can draw in yep. anyone, um, regardless of how hard-headed mm-hmm. the person is towards their firm initially, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. But there is sometimes this dissonance between the PR and the reality of when you actually get mm-hmm. into the firm and, you know, the navigation of particular people through particular firms, you know, may be quite difficult based on factors beyond their own control. And I'm talking from the the candidate perspective. And I think from very early on as well, firms need to be able to prove that not only do we want you because, because we also understand it's, it's a bit of a dirty trade, right? We understand that firms, they mm-hmm. have particular targets that they want to reach and, Um, They have particular recruitment strategies and all of the above. So even as a candidate, particularly as a diverse candidate, sometimes there can be that mentality that other people feel you're there because of your race or you may doubt your own ability because of your race. You think that you are the race card or you're the person ticking that quota. Mm -hmm. But aside from that narrative, once we actually get within these firms, there is a conversation to be had about all of those dreams you sold me before I got here. Mm -hmm. How true are they? Will I make associate? at the same time as my white counterparts, knowing fully well that I've done the same amount of work, had the same amount of uh, of effect, worked the same hours if FaceTime culture is a thing for your firm, which it shouldn't be, but we know that there are firms out there that still operate in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these are other conversations to be had. And I think, you know, they are difficult conversations for a number of firms to have, because what I've also come to understand is that sometimes when you're speaking to people within particular firms, senior management have their head in the clouds. They've got no idea what the actual firm culture is like. They've got no idea what Mm -hmm. it feels like to be a junior within that particular firm. And they go out making all these wild statements that are so far from fact. But they somehow have convinced themselves that that's the reality of the company that they run. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a conversation to be had amongst the super senior management within firms to bring them down to the flipping reality. Well, there was a there was a survey. I'm not going to mention the name of the mm. firm, but there was a survey recently that quite was quite widely circulated. I don't know if you saw it of a firm that did an internal employee engagement survey and asked about working conditions and hours and happiness with the role. And mm. the output of that was not happy reading, frankly, was it? I don't know if you saw that online. Well, there have been so many things circulating, and I think that it goes back to the point about firm culture and hyper visibility. Mm-hmm. It is so yeah. easy for somebody who lives in wherever they can be in the Sahara desert with access to internet and they can understand what it feels like to work in your firm Mm -hmm. and firms really need to be aware of this and understand that certain practices need to modernize and um and need to become more 
relatable to the generation that they're trying to target when you know we're not our parents generation mm -hmm. but can i just dig into that in two ways mm. right? so 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 firstly and again there's the sort of two separate lines of question here right but first and foremost if you're a candidate mm -hmm. Put yourself in your own shoes here, right? So you're looking at a, an, an opportunity and you're having a conversation and you're asking the question you asked before, right? Will I make associate at the same speed as my white counterpart mm. with the same background and so mm. on? Does anything that that organization say matter or does it? do you just look at precedent? Are you just looking to see someone that looks and feels and acts like you who's achieved that career trajectory in a comparable route? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. can somebody spin a, a tail for you or do you just want to see somebody that's done it before? That's definitely a question that's dependent upon who you're talking to. I think from my perspective, mm -hmm. I'm not really interested in anything anyone has to say. Yep. I definitely want to see that what you are saying has been actioned, mm -hmm. whether in my case, in the case of other people. And, you know, the numbers don't lie. Eyes don't lie. Mm -hmm. If I cannot look around a firm and see somebody in a senior role that looks like me, mm -hmm. then anything you're saying is absolute nonsense. I'm sorry. Yep. Okay, so, so totally get that perspective, yeah. right? But then the counter question, mm. being the devil's advocate for a second is, let's say we're in a hypothetical organization, yep. there's been a cultural shift, some leadership changes happen. So, you know, what it doesn't really matter, but, but things are a changing at this company. There is no senior black leadership figure, for example, mm -hmm. or there's no precedent to demonstrate to you that the message I'm portraying to you in terms of your progression yeah. and the equality within the organization is there. How has, does that organization give you comfort, confidence, mm. allay any concerns essentially about the trajectory that's on offer for you if they've not done it yet? Yeah, so this can be a difficult one. I, I completely get the angle of your question now. So you're talking in the event that there's, there's no precedent and they're saying, look, the change starts yeah. from now. Might even be a small business that's just never got this far, right? But it's, yeah. how can they yeah. give you that comfort? I think it's a number of things. Mentorship, sponsorship, posting, these kind of things go a very long way mm -hmm. in somebody's career. Letting somebody know that their work, their effect, their effort is visible, acknowledged and appreciated can give that comfort in the earlier and even the latter parts of their career that, OK, what I'm doing is not going to waste here. The work that I'm doing is being appreciated. I'm a valuable asset to this firm. Not only do mm -hmm. I know it, but they see it, they acknowledge it and they voice it. It's so important to voice it. Yeah. And to voice it out in the open as well, because there are a number of unwritten yeah. rules of the city, of the corporate world and of certain organizations that particularly if you come from backgrounds like the background that I came from, you don't know unless you get on the wrong side of it and then realize, oh, snap, that's not how they do things here. Or, you know, that I didn't do that in the best way to, to aid my career trajectory, for example. Mm -hmm. So I think there's also that conversation to be had about that more pertains to the mentorship side, like having somebody who's been there, done that, they understand the ropes and they can mentor you through that progression. And this to be endorsed by the firm, this to be something that the firm actively engages in and engages their, their junior hires in, in particular, and not just leaving all of the onus on them, because it can be a very, very overwhelming to join a firm from any background, but in particular from backgrounds that are underrepresented already within that firm mm -hmm. and, you know, have to focus on all these things at the same time. Someone made a statement to me the other day that the moment somebody feels welcome within an organization, only then can they focus on their actual job. Yep. It's too much to ask for somebody to join a firm, focus on their job, do well, 
get yourself a mentor, make sure you have good sponsors. It's too much. It's overwhelming. They need to feel welcome. They need to feel acknowledged. They need to feel appreciated. And only then can they settle down into the role and actually focus on delivering their, their job description. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think we talk a lot about this just in general in terms of the importance of a proper onboarding initiative mm. and all of the things that go. And that, to be clear, onboarding does not mean like signing your offer paperwork. <laughs> it means everything around the yeah. actual welcome process, Absolutely. right? And making people feel comfortable. I think one final question on this, and I, I'm just going to bring it up because we were very lucky to be joined by Billy Shipley in a previous podcast episode. And one of the points that she made in terms of employer branding mm. was thinking about how to get that diversity message out mm. there and attract more of the right folks and make people feel comfortable mm. but also and you sort of just alluded to this right like not tokenizing people mm. and you said you know there's consciousness sometimes that are you the only black person in the room or are you the only woman in technology or are you mm. the only x in y mm. and i guess my question well my final question in this kind of line of thinking is just if you are that early stage organization or you're an organization that's really looking to make some significant changes to the way that you think about recruitment, because I think there's loads and loads of organizations who have historically under-delivered yeah. and, and been bad agents here. But what we also need to do is plot a course for them to self-correct, mm. right? And so for organizations that are going through this transitional phase, how do you get, you know, maybe the the lone person of color or the lone mm. XYZ person, LGBTQ individual, yeah. the lone woman in technology. How do you leverage those individuals to get that message out and to give people that comfort without feeling like you're abusing them, if that makes sense? There are going to be some, you know, black people or some women or some people in the LGBTQ community who don't want to be the face of the matter. They just want to focus on their career. Absolutely. They want to do well, you know, their tunnel vision and they have other focuses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to mm -hmm. a certain extent, it's not fair to have to you know, leverage them all the time, particularly because, you know, they will be a minority within the firm. So you don't really have many options from a firm perspective. So it's a kind of double-edged sword. The firm knows that they don't have much resource. But I also think that there are other ways around about this. We've mentioned already that visibility is super important. So I completely understand that it makes sense to leverage those that you have within the firm yep. who already represent what you want more of as an organization. But at the same time, mm -hmm. there are other ways around it. Like, I know that the ACS Society at university was a home away from home for me. You don't necessarily need, I mean, it's great to have a black person be the, um, you know, communicate with with these kinds of cultural societies or with churches or who, who, wherever you know black people congregate or that your target group congregate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there are other resources out there that firms can leverage outside of, you know, choosing the token black person within the firm or the, the token woman yep. in, in the industry yep. to address these issues, for sure. But it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, Tom. Yeah, no, it is. And and that's what and thank you for the answer. That's why I asked the question, right? Like we want different perspectives yeah. here because these are touchy sensitive subjects. And I get, you know, you talk about post George Floyd being asked all the time to educate individuals on racism and I get that, but it sort of also frustrates me because you're not just a black yeah, person, exactly. right? You're also a program director yeah. and you're also a theologist and you're also this and that and and just being used asked to allocate your time to educate <laughs> yeah. people on race issues when there's countless books and other material you know obviously very well-intended questions but this is why i'm trying to pull this stuff out right because yeah. we want to make sure people are doing this i mean ask me about how i feel about the fact that my sixth finger was snipped off honestly if, <laughs> if this podcast was called anything else that's all we'd talk about right and i'm so i'm so glad we got that in there <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be a bumper question for the end, right? But um, <laughs> but no, look, that makes sense. I, I think yeah, 
moving on, right? So we've talked a bit about about internships. Yeah. We've talked about the, the the role they play. I guess a couple of quick fire questions on this, right? So you alluded to the fact before that perhaps some organizations that are viewing this as admin or they can't afford to pay for people aren't good quality fits, perhaps, let's just say for an internship initiative. Like, what does that look like in practice? Is there a tipping point? Is there a threshold? Is there like a stage of organization you should be at before you start thinking about rolling out an internship initiative? No, not at all. Not at all. We have everything from the biggest players in the game to the middle players to the smaller players. I'm talking Mm size-wise across the 24 different sectors that are represented. We have, even within investment management, investment management companies of five people who are offering five internships under the program. Do you know what I mean? So as long as Mm -hmm. a firm can meet the basic criteria of the program, because there are intersections between these issues, we have the issue of representation, we have the issue of all of these things can be inextricably linked. And as a program, we're Mm -hmm. making sure that the very basic right that every person has with regards to going into an internship is met. And that is to be paid well, Mm -hmm. to have a quality experience, and to be welcomed within a firm and its culture. No, makes perfect sense. I think in the context of, and again, obviously we would super encourage organizations to participate in the 10KBI initiative, right? But we're fortunate to have listeners all over the world Mm. and that might not be relevant for everybody. So I guess like taking a step back and just talking more generally about best practice internship advice, Mm. for people looking to run an internship initiative, like is there guidance or, or data or anything you guys have gleaned from the process you've run so far around the optimal length of an internship program and you know what are you seeing in terms of people actually paying are people sticking at that living wage level or oh, yeah. are people paying market yeah absolutely so um i would definitely say that the vast majority of firms kind of have they already have set internally their junior higher salaries for example and they just pro rata that mm-hmm. for the the course of the internship whether it's six weeks or so they're or paying market rate. exactly so we have firms paying market Great. rate so that that is yeah. definitely the norm in terms of the duration of the internship i definitely i'll definitely say that the vast majority are sticking to that six weeks but we have some mm-hmm. a lot of them actually 10 weeks 12 weeks you know months it depends um what is possible from the student perspective because of course whilst we're open to graduates as well people have graduated within recent years they are able to take up opportunities that are much much longer than that six weeks. And we have quite a few examples of internships lasting much, much longer than the base that we have set on the program. So, yeah. No, cool. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think in terms of the post-internship experience, mm. right? So you've run your first internship cohort or your 50th, it doesn't really matter. You've given, hopefully, the the people participating a fantastic experience and they've kind of got to grips with your employer brand mm. and they're, they're happy with mm. that what should you be doing as an organization to maximize the value of that engagement, right? Like are people just letting these these candidates fall back into the nether and they're never communicating with them again? Should they be talent pipelining? Should they be keeping in touch with them? What does that kind of look like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is our first year of execution. So it's definitely something that we're keeping our eye on very closely. We have interns going into industry from now mm-hmm. over the course of the summer. So in, you know, over the course of the years, we'll definitely watch that. But yes, it's super important to maintain a pipeline. Um, we have, I was in conversation actually with, with one of our participating firms just yesterday. And of course, there's the whole conversation about one, how do you structure a good internship? Two, how do you structure a good virtual internship in a year yep. where, you yep. know, there's, there's no such thing mm-hmm. as being in the office anymore. You know, all these kind of things are really shifting. And this particular firm, big, big kudos to them. They are really doing the right thing here. Um, They've set up packages that they're sending out to the home, like basically gift packages that they're sending out to each of the interns prior to them joining to make them feel welcome. It will have personalized video messages from the CEO and from their managers Mm -hmm. and just information about, you know, where they can access cheap monitors and, you know, all of it's just absolutely fantastic in terms of 
making sure that they are targeting the, the candidates from every step of the pipeline. And this particular firm as well interviewed every single one of the candidates that were on their candidate slate. Yep. Those that didn't get an opportunity with the firm, they gave them further training. So that even in itself, that is a neglected part of the pipeline. Those that firms reject for whatever reason, I love a firm that will look at that candidate pool and say, we've rejected you now, but it may be a yes later on down the line. And we're going to help you increase the chances of that becoming a yes later on down the line. And then at that point in time, you will be an asset to the firm. And hopefully we will be an asset to your life and your career trajectory as well. To be completely frank, under the program, there is no requirement for the internship to roll over into a full-time offer mm -hmm. because some firms, we don't want that to preclude firms who can offer an internship but not of a full-time offer from getting involved. Yep. And, you know, that experience is still going to be valuable for the intern and for the firm. But, you know, mm -hmm. a situation where it does roll over into full-time offer and they keep that pipeline going, that's a that's a win for everybody. It's a win for us all. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, so we talk more generally about talent pipeline all the time, mm. right? And the importance of doing that. And I think sometimes I, I worry that people listen to these things and they go, oh, that sounds like a lot mm. of effort. Oh, oh my God, do I have to give feedback to everybody and I have to send them this and I have to send them... <laughs> But the reality is that if you take a proper long-term view and you actually look at talent strategically, yes. which is what everybody needs to be doing to be yes. like at all competitive in today's market, this is the cheapest and like most cost and time effective recruitment exactly. you could ever imagine, right? Do you want to be going to the careers fair <laughs> and having a tiny store with another thousand <laughs> firms competing for the same five seconds of attention? Yeah, exactly. Or do you want to own that person immediately mm -hmm. because you've given them such an incredible experience, whether you've hired them exactly. or not, right? And I think you made the point that maybe some organizations aren't in a position to offer a full-term position post-internship right now and like from my perspective that's yeah. fine but what you are in a position to do is offer a, a full-term quality internship experience exactly. and a full-term quality engagement with that individual sure. and by the time they're ready for an employment opportunity maybe you are exactly. too and so like I, I think there's so much and it's just frustrating sometimes because we see sometimes these things are like different teams or mm. it's a different mindset and what you find is that there's a a bunch of people who've invested a, a serious amount of time offering a fantastic internship experience mm. and it all falls by the wayside mm. because nothing ever happens afterward yeah. and so yeah great to hear from some of your kind of real world experience it's free there. marketing as well tom it's free marketing if you treat a candidate exactly. well whether or not they get an offer they're going to speak well of you mm -hmm. to their peers and that mm -hmm. is free marketing and it costs so much for you know all of these ads and all these different platforms just treat people well and they'll speak well of you and the word will spread yeah and i think the early in career stage stuff is like a real I don't really, I don't know what the word is. It's, I'm going to call it wisdom of the crowds, right? But like that early in career stage thing is incredible mm. because it's almost like little virality, right? Like these people speak to one another incredibly yep. quickly. When everybody comes back to school or back to college or whatever, after their internship phase, are we thinking they're not talking about the quality of the experience <laughs> they, they were offered? Are. are we thinking that authentic message isn't finding its way into the market? Yeah. Like all the points you made before this is the lowest hanging fruit available. And I appreciate that the payback horizon might be slightly longer than conventional recruitment marketing, but this has to form part of your strategy, Absolutely. Right? There are a number of firms that I deliberately did not apply to after hearing experiences from other, you know, uh, students at university. Yeah, no question, yeah. right? No question at all. And I think that is gold to understand mm -hmm. as an organization, right? So let's move on a bit. So, sure. so Again, we've done interns, we've done sort of the diversity play and the importance of that and having everybody really understand the roots of the problem here. I'm sure we'll circle back there later. But let's touch on 
again, a more broad look at early in career hiring in general, mm-hmm. right? Like we understand that some organizations are splitting early in career and kind of experienced professionals yeah. and approaching that very differently. Yeah. Again, from your experience, is there a tipping point where that needs to happen? Like do organizations mm-hmm. hit sure. a certain size where they need a dedicated approach for both sets of the market or can they do everything with like a one size fits all approach? I'm definitely one to say, like my parents brought myself and my siblings up with this phrase, anything worth doing is worth doing well. Mm-hmm. So I definitely believe that there will be differences between hiring at those those two stages. So if you do have dedicated teams to focus on those individual experiences, then that that's a good thing. What is not a good thing is for there to be no conversation and no link between those two teams because one is extricably linked to the other. Mm-hmm. If you're having a good experience and you know you're doing well at the early the early career hiring stage, it makes the experience hire stage much more possible because then it brings into the conversation the matter of retention. And this is where firms within industries and in other industries also rely on each other. Because if I am now, you know, I'm working for X firm and I've had a terrible experience in that industry and I end up being flight risk and I leave after one year without um, filling out the graduate program. That's not just bad for the firm that I've left. Mm -hmm. That's also bad for other firms who would have been relying upon me having a good experience in that industry such that I stay within that career stay wanting to pursue a trajectory in that career and I'm then in the position to be an experienced hire whether at whatever level that may be so I definitely think that it's good to have tailored approaches to those different stages but there needs to be very strong communication and a very strong relationship between those two teams because you can't operate in silos and I think that's where things that's where things lapse when you know there's one approach to one thing and another approach to another thing when the two are you know completely related to each other yeah, and I think, again, you sort of alluded to this much earlier in our chat, but one of the things I'd love to get a view from you on is is what are these early in career people looking for from mm. employer brands and from this process? And again, to shed some light on that, I think we had spoken to an organization a long time ago, sort of, again, fairly large scale, fairly traditional financial services organization mm-hmm. that had gone through not a hiring freeze, but they were sort of very proud of the fact that their retention was extremely good, okay. right? And they had a lot of people that had worked for this organization for like 20 to 30 years. And they hit a point where all of a sudden, a lot of these 20 to 30 year tenure people were approaching retirement <laughs> and they needed to kind of backfill and fill the yeah. ranks, right? And they had this like void within the organization where yeah. everybody was like 45 and they didn't really know how to position themselves. Mm. And they spent a lot of time and effort and money framing their employer brand talking about all the benefits they interviewed all the team they have and asked why they would stayed there for 30 mm. years and then they built a career site and a, a, a sort of recruitment marketing strategy off the back mm-hmm. of that and they found that they attracted absolutely no young people <laughs> whatsoever because the message about i've been here for 30 years it, and i love it horrible. and i get my 24 days holiday and i got a golf trip and a gold watch when no. i retired <laughs> not gonna fly yeah. right and i think Taking your point, I I super agree with the importance of connecting the dots and sort of everybody singing from the same hymn sheet, so to speak. But for organizations that may have a bit of a gulf on the kind of millennial and Gen Z front, like what what is that message? What are people looking for? What's going to resonate with that audience? Yeah, people are looking to be enriched. So, like you know, going back to the conversation we had earlier, people Mm -hmm. in my generation and below are approaching firms with the mentality of what am I going to gain from this opportunity? When I decide to leave this firm, which for many people in my generation is not in 10 years, it's not in 20 years, it's in two, Mm -hmm. one or two, maybe three to five years, if you're lucky with someone who has Mm -hmm. much more of a long-term view, 
will I leave this place better than I came? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would definitely say from a marketing perspective and not just marketing, it needs to be the reality from a reality perspective, because if we find that you're calling bluff, we will leave. We don't, we don't stay where we don't want to be. So, um, from what they really need to focus on is what can we as a firm offer this person? Will they have a good work-life balance? Will they still be able to do the things that they love? Because we are generation side hustle. Everybody is doing something outside of the day job and they want time to be able to focus on that. Mm -hmm. They want, and if they don't have a side hustle, they have a family or they have a hobby, you know, certain things that, you know, keep their mental well-being even intact. And that's another big I feel like it's a buzzword these days. You know, every firm is talking yeah. about mental health and, and you know, psychology and all of that type of thing. But the realities of it start at the recruitment level as well. You know, what are you doing as, a, as an organization to ensure that whilst we encourage our people to work hard, we are also ensuring that they can come to the table with all of their energy, all of their strength, with their mental health intact, such that they can be an asset to the firm in the first place. So I do think that there needs to be a focus on that. Firms need to focus on this because generation side hustle, generation, I have no desire to be here for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Generation, if you don't treat me well and promote me, I'm going to leave quicker than you can blink. You know, these ancient hiring practices just aren't going to work. It's not a good thing for you to show me somebody who's been at the firm for 25 years. To me, that is... A nightmare <laughs> I, I, yeah no i get it I, I get it don't get me wrong i get why at the time you know job security all that type of thing was very big in in previous economies um and you know to a certain extent even in this economy where things are very unstable at the moment i definitely think that people will value a kind of stable income and all that type of thing but the drivers just aren't the same the drivers really are not the same I think, yeah, it depends a lot on the circumstance, doesn't it? Yeah, right? it does. I think in, in some industries, in knowledge economy work, in technology and finance, yeah. we're seeing those 10 years go down and down because candidates understand that they have the power. But yeah. in other more traditional industries where work is a bit harder to come by or their industry as a macro sector is suffering, yeah. job security and other things are still kind of front and center at, yeah. of candidates' minds yeah. and, and, and they're not they're not looking at it from a, the same sort of position of privilege, so to speak. And I think it's important that organizations understand that one rule doesn't apply to everybody, exactly. right? You need to tailor that message to the type of people you're trying to attract. And the best way to understand what they're looking for is just to bloody ask. Exactly. Them. Speak to them. Speak to the people yeah, that you want exactly. to attract. Speak to the people you yeah, speak to the people you already have that you yeah. love and speak to the people in the market and understand why they're not saying yes to yeah. your offers if they're not, yeah. right? I think the last thing I want to touch on before we wrap up is is just the role of educational backgrounds in hiring teams, right? I think a lot of mm. not specifically with 10 KPI, yeah. but like a lot of what we talk about when we think about bringing a more diverse pool of folks into organizations mm -hmm. and, and others across the world is is not just color or gender yep. or LGBTQ and any of those sorts of things. It's also educational background and skills and discrimination and bias in that yeah. like arena, right? And so really interested in kind of understanding if you're seeing any patterns or trends from the organizations you're working with in terms of their view of the where, where they're looking for talent, I guess. Yeah, so I think I would be a liar if I said that there aren't still firms with kind of target institutions like if you're not oxford or cambridge mm -hmm. they don't really view you with the same you know and it's something that again as a program we're very focused on navigating away from hence why you know when describing the demographic or breakdown of those that apply to the to the program the focus for us something that we're really proud about is the fact that 59 percent of the applications were from non-russell group universities and 40 percent of the offers went to those from non-russell group universities I think yeah. there's this study that I was kind of taking note of earlier 
put out by McKinsey a few years ago, and they said that, you know, with diversity of thought, with diversity of background, education, race, sexuality, comes diversity of opinion, of course, and through diversity of opinion actually leads to better decisions within teams and within boards and all of the above. So not only Mm -hmm. is this level of diversity good for the sense of belonging and people's well-being, it's actually good for business. So if you're a hard-stoned, hard-heart person that actually couldn't give two flying monkeys about how many people on your team are from the LGBTQ community or are from a black community or whatever. It's just good for business, right? Yeah. If you're yeah. if you're the one that only cares about the money, then you should care about this mm-hmm. as a result of caring about the money because yep. it directly yep. leads to higher profits, higher mm-hmm. margins, better decisions, better governance even, and more complicity with the law. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day. What she informed me of is a study that was done by, I think it's Yale, but I will correct myself if I'm wrong um, after this, but a study that was put Mm -hmm. out by them and said that actually companies who have more diverse boards and more diverse leadership teams have the least instances of fraud. Mm -hmm. So whilst it's also good for business, it's good for compliance. It's literally, it's good for absolutely everything outside of just, you know, me as a black person entering a firm and feeling welcome. If that's not important to you, the other stuff absolutely should be. Yeah, it just makes commercial sense beyond your desire for a diverse workforce anyway, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, this is important to me, right? And I think the dynamic between us is super interesting because (laughs) you're like a genius Oxford graduate and I left school at 16 (laughs) to to set up a little business, right? And so I think, like, I look at this through a slightly different lens as well, right? And I think we're practice. We have people here at Pinpoint from Oxbridge Mm. and other very high-quality education institutions as Mm. well, and we all play super nicely together, which is fine. But, like... What's interesting, so we're like you, you know, we're very proud to participate and work with 10KBR. We also work with an organization in America called Opportunity at Work. And they sort of take this one step further and they say, well, hey, don't just look at non-elitist educational institutions, let's just say, and, and sort of cream with the crop organizations, but also look at the millions and tens of millions of people who don't have yeah, a degree at all yeah, and look leaders. at the role that they play in the workforce. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, I'm just looking at some of the stats from their report now, right? Yeah. You know, they have done a very, very large scale study and they've sort of identified that organizations that are making a a degree a requirement for applying for a role Mm. immediately screen out 68% of African-Americans. They're screening out 79% of Latinx, Mm. 73% of people who live in rural communities, Mm. Mm. right? Like these are big numbers, right? Two thirds of people that leave the military or are veterans. Yeah. These people are incredibly smart, skillful people. And one of the other things that they did is they did a mass study of like millions and millions of job descriptions and identified that 70% of jobs that required a degree, actually, when you look at the skills and the the requirements of the day-to-day role of the job, don't require things that you learn in the degree anyway. And so there's 70 million people in America that don't have a degree that are actually qualified to do Mm. jobs that they're sort of being discriminated against for not doing. Mm. And I, I think it's really important that we all start to question the validity of some of these fairly archaic hiring processes in terms of, I understand why it's just an easy screen. Yeah. But there are so many other ways now to screen candidates out yeah. and to review people en masse. And there's tools and there's processes and there's tricks to do so. When you were getting a thousand CVs through the post every day, I get why looking for a degree at the top of it was an easy way of moving that list down. Yeah, but, but it's lazy. There's better ways. It's lazy. Yeah. There's better ways of doing this now. And I would really encourage organizations to learn from yeah. this conversation, but also just to open their bloody eyes and realize that it shouldn't be a requirement anymore. Absolutely. I completely agree and I completely echo. And, you know, part of combating that element of things through the program is the fact that we are also open to 18 plus A-level students. So Mm -hmm. if you're 18 plus and you're on a post A-level gap year, 
also eligible to apply to the program. But yeah, in terms of future years of expansion, you won't be surprised to hear that it's definitely come up in conversation in terms of the ways that we can consider expanding the program. And, you know, those options come as part of the eligibility criteria. You know, Mm -hmm. does it have to be people with a degree? Can we look at people who actually are in a court up on the wrong side of the law and, you know, look at internship programs to kind of, you know, help them re-navigate the direction of their lives and things like that? You know, all of these are rolling conversations, but I absolutely, absolutely agree. And actually, some of the smartest people I know have gone to supposedly non-target, not so good universities or, you know, didn't do well in their academic experience, but actually they're absolute whizzes mm-hmm. when it comes to actual life. I mean, formal education is one thing. But being good at life Life is a completely different thing. No, and look, some of the smartest, most inspiring people in our team fit that background, right? And so, yeah, no, like reminded of that every day. Yeah, sure. I think, look, this has been amazing. So thank you so much. I have one final question. Hit me. uh, Which is, how did it feel to have your sixth finger cut off? (laughs) In all honesty, I've got no idea, Tom. I was much too young. (laughs) You set me up for that and you've disappointed me with the answer there. I must have been about three hours old by the time it was gone. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I feel I feel very happy to know. But that. you know, I've still got the uh, the bump there, and I've got an emotional attachment to it. You've got the yeah. war wounds to show for it, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Well, look, Esther, this has been great. It's been eye opening. It's been inspiring. It's been super relevant to stuff that every organisation's sort of challenged with these days. Mm. So, thank you for sharing your own experience. Thanks for talking to us about 10 KPI. And thanks for answering the questions. Really appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me. And yeah, super excited to keep working with you. I know you didn't mention, but Pinpoint are obviously building out our ATS system. So big shout out to, to you guys for that. It's been great so far. So far. Emphasis on the so far. So far. Yeah. It's been great no, so far. Look, we're, we're really proud to work with organizations like, like 10KBI, right? And I think, as I say, opportunity at work. I think you talked about, uh, you know, repatriating different groups into the, the workforce or working with mm. people entering the the justice uh, sort of exiting the justice system and coming back into the workforce we work with an organization called the way out that supports that like these issues are personal to us right and these are things that like we can mm. help very large-scale technical organizations recruit more engineers but that's not the only thing yeah. that recruitment and talent is good for right and so absolutely you know, really appreciate the opportunity to work with you thank you for joining us and i think to everybody else no, thank you for more great kind of tales from the trenches and best practice guidance please stay tuned to the talent revolution right we've got great quality content just like this coming at you every tuesday please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode thank you for listening Mm -hmm.